Let's go ahead and get started. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, we've, we are, since we're looking at the seven letters of the churches in the morning, we've, of course, been looking at various themes in Revelation. We've looked at uh, Christ our Creator, Christ the Redeemer, Christ the Judge. And I suspect that those are three broad themes you're going to find virtually on every page of Revelation. Not going to be controversial. Um, but I will say that if, if I offended you this morning, you probably needed it, uh, but uh, I, I, it's very likely I'll offend you again this evening. So um, we're going to um, uh, look at uh, a theme, I think, in Revelation that um, particularly as Westerners, we, we miss. And, and it, it keeps showing up. So, so I, um, I, think, I think what we'll see here in Revelation 13. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We'll read the first 10 verses. John, the apostle, writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on his horns, and blasphemous names on his heads. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet was like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints, to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Go Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask that you would open our hearts that we would receive your word in our mind, that we'd understand it, our eyes, that we'd see your glory, our ears, we would hear your word, our mouth, we'd speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet, that we go in obedience. A really difficult text we have here this evening. May we be faithful to your revealed word and apply it to our lives. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Seated. For those who have been on Facebook today or even this past Thursday, know that uh, the family and I took a little field trip, a spontaneous field trip, and, uh, um, and we went to see someone who was dead. Not to brag about how, how exciting our field trips are, but we went to a gravesite of someone that I've been wanting to go see. I'm not related to this person at all. We did the same thing in the middle of COVID last year after about four weeks of being locked in. Y'all remember, y'all remember COVID? Um, and we went to go see an ancestor of mine. It's on private property, and we finally found it and contacted the owner and whatnot. But this was a little different. This was someone who, who uh, was a uh, preacher in the mid-19 uh, or mid-20th century. His name is William Marion Brenham. See the years there from 1909 to 1965. And this is the most famous picture of um, uh, William Brenham. Do you see something strange about this picture? Yes, it is the light bulb. I mean the halo right here, right? That is definitive proof that he is angelic. Or at the very least, a prophet of God. 
Let's see how we can get there. Well, he began his ministry as an independent Baptist. That seems to be a theme here of, of we've looked at each Sunday evening. And soon afterwards began hosting a series of tent revivals. Some of y'all remember old school tent revivals, been to some uh, and whatnot, maybe got saved to some. Billy Graham got saved at one under Mordecai Ham in North Carolina, North Carolina, sorry. But in 1933, uh, an estimated 3,000 people showed up to a specific uh, tent revival in Jeffersonville, Indiana, where he was based out of. And this really is what launched his full-time ongoing preaching ministry. Uh, but it, it eventually transitioned from an independent Baptist-style approach to a charismatic one. Uh, he encountered, on May 7th, 1946, he encountered an angel who visited him, transforming his ministry. And from that came uh, miraculous events, claims of healings, and everything else. This is the context by which you, you see the picture here is at a tent revival uh, where supposedly uh, he was anointed by uh, and given the office of, of prophet. And so his ministry went from primarily a preaching one to, to its preaching, but also uh, a healing ministry. And so he would come like Benny Hinn, you know, that we're, we might be more familiar with, call people to the front and ask, you know, what's hurting you? I have an ingrown toe now, or uh, you should meet my in-laws. And he would heal them and, and or at least claim to heal them and go on to, to the next person. So he leaves behind his independent Baptist background, adopts a more charismatic approach, becomes a leading charismatic figure of the 20th century. And after his visit with the angel, you can go visit the, the spot. We, we didn't do this because I love my family too much. But, 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 but you can go there and you can go to the spot where supposedly the angel spoke to him and all that. But out of that also comes a change in theology that is still with the followers of William Branham to this day. Perhaps most notice, noticeable one is his denial of the Trinity. He held to a doctrine known as modalism. This has been your test at the end. Modalism claims that uh, God in three persons that we just sang about is actually uh, one person uh, that reveals himself in three unique ways. Much in the way that I am a father, a son, and a brother, uh, so too God is Father, Son, and Spirit. But he isn't God, Father, or he isn't Father, Son, Spirit at the same time, right? You don't have three distinct persons in the Trinity. You have one God in three distinct um, uh, roles, he also uh, argued that denominationalism was evil. In fact, he connected denominationalism with the mark of the beast. I don't know how, and I'm too lazy to find out how, but he did connect it. In fact, one of the problems that Brenhamites have now is th there are Brenhamite churches all over the world, but, but they're not connected to each other in any fundamental way. It's a very loose connection, mostly through a website and old recordings of Brenham they would listen to. But the third thing that, that really uh, dominated his preaching, in addition to those things, was an eschatological preaching. That is, he started to preach a lot about the end times. He didn't write many books, but one in particular, perhaps his most influential one, I actually have it. I think I paid 50 cents for it, so don't, don't, uh, don't think. Uh, we're paying this guy to buy heresy. Well, you are, but, but beyond that, uh, it's not so that I could become a heretic. book is simply called An Exposition, Exposition of the Seven Church ages. Now, when you hear seven churches, that should, that should ring a bell. It's what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. What William Brenham argued was that the seven churches of Revelation that we've been looking at are not primarily seven local churches in the first century. Everything to him in Revelation is future tense. And what you're getting with the seven churches are seven ages of the church. In fact, if uh, uh, here his, his, his tomb, which 
Isn't that just gorgeous? When we, we went up there, the kids, Amanda, didn't know what we were looking for, who we were looking for, who we were visiting, and that sort of stuff. Uh, I just love to torture them. And I said, look, look for a tombstone that doesn't look like any other tombstone you've ever seen. And when you find the, the, the Egyptian pyramids with a giant bird on top, that's unique. Okay? I don't care if you are from Eastern Kentucky. This is weird. Okay? This is, this is quite weird. Uh, but I believe this is it. You, you probably can't see it from where you are. Here are the seven churches. Ephesians, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira. Uh, 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 yeah, it's, it's Sardis. It, it's written weird. Philadelphia and Laodicea. Right? So those are the seven churches. We, we, we've talked about five of those. And we'll look at the, the next two the next upcoming weeks. You'll notice that, that if you go to the other side, I don't have a picture of it. He believes that each of these churches are seven distinct ages of the church, church history. Each age has a prophet given to it. And so these are mentioned on the other side of his tombstone, uh, adjacent to this. Uh, the first prophet was Paul, church of Ephesus. The next was a guy by the name of Irenaeus. If you ever, church, ever studied the early church, uh, Irenaeus will, will pop up, very influential man. Uh, other names you might be familiar with, one would be Martin Luther or John Wesley, guess who is the seventh prophet or the seventh angel to the seventh church age? Any guess who it is? William Brenham, right? There he is. In fact, you will find another of, of his grave. His name is at the top as the seventh angel to the seventh church, the seventh prophet. And in his a tombstone here, I, I can't read it from here, uh, but he quotes from Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 is the last chapter of the Old Testament, and there the prophet prophesies that in the end, John, or not John, but Elijah will come. It is that verse that Jesus later says was fulfilled in John the Baptist. However, if you read the text, it's clearly eschatological. It's clearly about the end times. And William Brenham takes that passage and says, it is about me. Again, I've told you this before. If anyone looks at the Bible and says, they're talking about me, you need to find a better church. Okay, you have my permission. If I ever say that and not in a joking way, please leave and never come back, right? I mean, for your own soul, okay? And so William Brenham really believed because he was told by the angel he was that prophet. And this means that being that this is the seventh age of the church, the end was near. And he began to preach this. Now, he predicted that America will be destroyed in 1977. See, it is all Nixon's fault, isn't it? Nixon and Jimmy Carter's fault. You knew it all along, right? See, I got a Democrat and a Republican in there, so don't be sending me hate mail, at least for that. Send it for other reasons I probably deserve. However, he never made it to the destruction of the United States. You've survived it. Congratulations. But he never made it. He died in a car accident driving from Texas in a series of tent revivals back to Jeffersonville. I don't think he made it out of Texas. He died as a result of a drunk 17-year-old was driving the wrong side of the road, hit him head on. He died days later in a Texas hospital. The date of his death was Christmas Eve, 1965. The date of his burial, April the 11th, 1966. Now, you may be asking yourself, self, why did they wait three and a half months to bury the guy? The reason is quite simple. Remember, he had been making claims about the end of the world, claims that he was a prophet. He supposedly had predicted various events. I, I think most of them are hoaxes, but you can find these, you know, you can get online, you can find different things um, uh, that he supposedly predicted. 
And upon his death, his son spread the rumor that his father had told him that between his death, Christmas Eve, 1965, and Easter morning, 1966, he would rise from the dead. April the 11th, 1966, is the day after Easter of 1966. He didn't rise from the dead. So they went ahead and buried him. And to this day, my understanding is, I, I've not been able to find this from, from uh, primary sources of Brenamites, but I, I've been told this really every time I study Brenamites, is that um, his followers supposedly still go to his grave on Easter morning hoping to see that the tomb is empty. Uh, they have been disappointed ever since. Uh, now, chances are you've met a few Brenhamites. I have. I was telling some of y'all earlier, uh, my wife was approached by a Brenhamite when she worked at Lobby Hobby in Louisville when we first got married. Um, I buried a lady uh, when I was a uh, pastor previously. Her uh, brother was and, and, and sister-in-law, they were, they were Brenhamites, and we talked about this some. Well, you want to know about that prediction in 1977. Well, it goes farther than that. Uh, if Christ is going to return, the world is going to end in 1977, what must happen three years prior, three and a half years prior? It's got to be the rapture. So in 1974, the Brenhamites all gathered anticipating the return of Christ. Well, guess what didn't happen? Jesus didn't return. Following the 1977 date, a significant number of people left the movement. Uh, this, this movement is, I don't know if I have, yeah, here's, here's one more. For the record, we did not take the flowers there. Okay, and then to deal with that, that right there. By the way, here's, here's the, uh, yeah, here's the Malachi quote, Malachi 3. And I think that's his wife buried uh, name right there. So this is none other than William Brenham. Well, he does exactly what everyone we've seen in this series so far. You get distracted by the minutiae, you miss the message. The message is Jesus. And maybe in this series, you're overwhelmed by Revelation. As I get overwhelmed by Revelation, I'm almost ready for us to be done with this study because it is overwhelming because I don't understand it all. And there's so many details, and it's so easy to see there's a good argument here, a good argument there. But let us just pause and think it's ultimately about Christ and about his rule and reign upon the earth. Well, as we've said, there are countless ways to read Revelation. That's one of the many challenges of it. And the broad conclusions people make regarding the end times are endless and they're all open for debate. For example, is there a rapture, yes or no? Some will say yes, particularly premillennialists and dispensationalists. Some will say no, uh, like all millennialists and others. And if there is a rapture, is it pre-trib? Is it mid-trib? Is it post-trib? What is it? What role does the church play in leading up to the millennium? Uh, What role do the Jewish people play in the end? Should we err in interpreting Revelation literally or figuratively? How do we do these things? One thing I find helpful when it comes to reading Revelation is to understand that Revelation was written to local believers in Asia Minor. Thus, whatever our conclusions are about Revelation, yes, they apply to you and me. Yes, they are futuristic, and I do believe that. At the same time, they must address the pressing needs of these seven specific churches. One of the things I've said for years in my criticism of Darwinism is that Darwinism offers a creative solution that is, that is down the road to an immediate problem. If you need wings to fly so that you don't get eaten by predators, you need wings now, not eight million years down the road, Right? Evolution supposedly offers a solution that is far too down the road. 
so too, if you are the first readers of this book, are you opening the book and saying, okay, now I'm looking for 2,000, down the ro- 2000 years down the road to see what happens. No, you're looking at the text and saying that it is written to meet my current situation, addressed specifically by Jesus in the opening letters. So that is one thing to consider, that Revelation is primarily written to local believers in Asia Minor and not primarily to 21st century Americans in the South. So the application must apply to them as it would us. And I do think this is a mistake we make whenever we read Revelation as only future only, okay? Now, it is about the future, right? It is very clear Jesus is coming back. That is about the future. And I think a lot of the details in it are about the future. Um, But it's more than that. Actually, I think that's the real riches of Revelation is it's telling us a story about humanity. It's telling us a story about history and the role of the church in history. History. So yes, on the one hand, the beast we meet here could represent a future entity. Call him Antichrist, if you will. But at the same time, the beast we meet here isn't just that, I don't believe. So, after all, for those first believers, there already was a beast in their midst. There already was a Babylon. There already was persecution, violence, and a man for judgment. And the context of those things was Rome. Among other things, Revelation offers, I believe, a critique of empire in general and a critique of Roman power in particular. And the fact, I think, that modern Christians have missed this detail in the West may tell us about us Christians in the West. Okay? Well, let's start with the theological background. Let's leave William Brenham behind and talk about a theological background here. In the Old Testament, to the surprise, I think, for a lot of this is an area that I've been growing in in recent months and years. There are, we could say, three falls in the Old Testament. You know one of them naturally, right? Because this is what we grew up with. Genesis 3, we have the fall of mankind, right? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Mankind falls. Sin enters the world. All that sort of stuff. But as we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, you keep reading the Genesis narrative, and we realize there's two other narratives that follow the same pattern. The second fall is, of course, the fall of cosmic forces, Genesis 6, the sons of God mixed with the daughters of men. And thus you get the the flood narrative, and the flood is referenced throughout the rest of the Bible for good reason. And thirdly, there is in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, the fall of the nations. Now, with the Tower of Babel, what is happening here is more than just a narrative about arrogance, right? If if this were Sunday school and we're reading Genesis 11 about a bunch of guys, you know, built a big tower, they're going to reach the heavens. And what we would say is, don't be prideful like the the, the Babelites, right? Now, let's pray and go home. That's basically what what it is that we do with it. But in the narrative, it's, it's about more than just arrogance. It's about a pattern of behavior from the perspective of the Jewish people about nations, about empires, This is made, I think, pretty clear. It it involves some interpretive challenges that go beyond our purposes this evening. But in Deuteronomy 32, Moses makes this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. That language is interesting, isn't it? Here is Israel uh, on the eve of the promised land. And he says that when God gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. Now, when did he divide mankind? He did it at Babel. 
He fixed the borders of peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That language of sons of God is interesting as well. But the Lord's portion is, is his people, Jacob, that is Israel, his allotted heritage. Now notice what he's saying there. Again, we can't get into detail I would like. He is saying that, look, what you have then is that God appointed to the nations at the Tower of Babel, right, borders and identities and whatnot, and he appoints to them their inheritance. But with the people of Israel, remember, Abraham comes out of that story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11 and 12, that he becomes their God. So in the Jewish mindset, the nations are, by their nature, corrupt. Because God has handed them over to corruption. This is why when they enter the promised land, it is a fight about land because there is association with nations and land and their deities. So when God shows up and pushes back the Egyptians and leads his people through the wilderness and then they waltz into the promised land and dispel the gods, it's a big deal, right? Don't keep any of the Canaanite gods around here. This is God's land, not their land. God has given you as an inheritance this land, and it is your land. I think this, this helps us understand some of the strong language in the Old Testament for the Edomites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and all of them. These nations are not just uniquely prone to violence or idolatry or anything like that, but their gods, the Bible would say, make them this way. Thus, the war of faith the worship of Yahweh versus the worship of the idols, was not primarily a political one in the Old Testament. It was a spiritual one. After all, if the solution to Israel is good politics and policy, then it shouldn't matter which God the king of Israel worships. He just needs to have good policy. But in the Hebrew text, his, his, his pure worship of Yahweh represents the people of God against the nations and their gods. So we have to view the Old Testament text and, and all of its in and out with the nations and everything as a spiritual battle, not just an historic, socioeconomic, or political one. So when Israel surrenders to idolatry, they are surrendering their national, racial, and religious identity. So go briefly back to the story of David and Goliath. You see why it is so important now? Goliath is a giant representing the nations. And who's this little guy with a slingshot? Little Dennis the Menace going to take him down. The text is telling us something about their identity. Now, the New Testament updates this theology slightly. Christ, they argue, the apostles argue, comes for all the nations, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. Thus, his gospel transcends borders, nationalities, ethnicities, gender, social class, all of that. I mean, how many stories can you find in the New Testament to illustrate this? The of the Good Samaritans, first one that comes off mind, right? A Samaritan is the hero, not a Jew. Samaritans are half-breeds who, who, who interlocked with the Babylonians. They're evil people. Run! Who's on the eve of his execution? The Greeks come to Jesus, and Jesus says, this is why I've come. The nations are gathering. And then before he ascends, what do he say? I want you to go to the nations, because the entire cosmos is the Lord's. But at the same time, we understand the seductive nature of human power, don't we? Read the New Testament. Um, are the apostles ever in power? No. They're always victims of it. The early church is always victims of it, as is much of church history. Every nation, 
Every empire the New Testament shows us, despite its spiritual identity, becomes corrupt and is prone to violence, war, and injustice. The case in point for the New Testament is Rome. What I think we see in Revelation, among other things, is a critique of Roman power that is applied beyond Rome that, is, that includes to what we can say today. Well, let's look at this text as brief as we can. I've probably already lost you, and that's okay. Um, last week, we looked briefly at this chapter in passing. We talked about the beast, right? And remember last week, we, we said that the beast represents political power. It's a simplification, but it'll work for our purposes here. And you see right away in chapter 13, verse 1, uh, the apocalyptic imagery. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven hands, ten diadems on his horns, and blasphemous names on his heads. Now, what in the world do you do with that, right? I and mean, every time you come to Revelation, like, what in, in, what in the Sam Hills, right? Sam Hills was a uh, reporter, I believe, from Louisville who went to uh, eastern Kentucky to report on uh, the Hatfield McCoys. So the question was, what in Sam Hills is he doing here, right? Uh, you don't care about that. It has nothing to do with the beast here. Um, but uh, I, I have ADHD uh, or B-O-Y-S, I think. Uh, but we've, we, we've talked about the beast here. Now, this beast, is Genesis is all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. We talked about this last week. There are four beasts in Daniel 7. They represent Babylon, the Medo-Persians, Greece, and Rome. And what we see in, in Revelation is that this fourth beast embodies all those others and is those other beasts to the max, right? So if you thought the Medo-Persians were bad, if you thought the Babylonians were bad, if you thought the Greeks were bad, wait till the Romans show up. They are far worse. And that is connected there in verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, its mouth like a... All those animals are, show up in Daniel 7. So it's clearly, uh, John is connecting this with uh, the beast of Daniel 7. And you'll notice that the beast rises out of the sea. And much like much of Revelation, uh, uh, you can take this literally, you can take it figuratively. Can I offer you just a figurative interpretation just for sake of argument? Not always, but sometimes the word sea in the, in, in the Revelation is figurative. Can I give you just one example of this? Here uh, in the new heavens, which we'll probably talk about next week, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away, and the sea was no more in it. Now, now, you read about heaven, and there is a river running through it. It looks like the Garden of Eden. So how could you say there's a river but not a sea? I mean, they're all bodies of water. Well, the reason I think is, is what the sea represents. One thing you need to notice here is that the first beast rises out of the sea in verse 1. The second beast, verse 11, rises out of the earth. I don't know what to do with that, but that seems significant, wouldn't you say? And throughout Revelation, you will see mighty angels and other, other creatures who have one foot on the land, one foot in the sea. I don't know what to do with that, but it seems significant, wouldn't you agree? So, so, so is this figurative? I, I, I don't know. You do with it whatever you, you want. But you see he has seven horns, seven heads, seven diadems. Good luck illustrating that. The number seven is almost always figurative in Revelation. It represents fullness, completeness. You ought to trust you're familiar with that. Here, notice horns, heads, and diadems suggest authority, power, and rulership. This is why we say the beast represents some form of political authority and power. Now, notice in verse 2, the power behind the, the beast is the dragon, the second part of verse 2. And to it, that is the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. We meet the dragon in, in chapter 12. We talked briefly about him. The dragon is clearly Satan. Chapter 12, verse 9 makes this very clear. It's the ancient serpent of Genesis 3, the dragon, Leviathan, all those sort of images that we see throughout the Bible. Thus, what lies behind the political corruption, political power, is a spiritual being. 
Notice that that power and great authority the beast is credited with comes from the dragon. And given that the dragon is Satan, there may be a connection to the seven churches. We've talked about this briefly. Notice that in Revelation there is, if I could say without implying you should watch this show, but there is a type of Game of Thrones, okay? Um, let, let me see. First of all, there is Christ's throne in Revelation, right? Uh, in Revelation 1-4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace, right? Who is, who was, who is to come. And the seven spirits who are where? Before his throne. That throne is sort of important there, isn't it? Now, you may not know what any of that imagery means, but that throne seems to stick out. Chapter 4, at once I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven. And, and, and with one seated on that throne, oh, who's this guy, right? We talked about chapter 4 in some detail a few weeks ago. By the way, this throne shows up all throughout chapter 4 and chapter 5. I'm going to skip to chapter 6. The kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, following us, hide us from the face of him who is seated where? On the throne, the wrath of the Lamb. So clearly, a throne plays an important role in Revelation. At the same time, there is talk of Satan's throne. We saw this a few weeks ago, didn't we? I know you dwell where Satan's throne is. Remember, one city has Satan, is Satan's synagogue. Actually, two cities have Satan's synagogue. But one city has Satan's throne. Maybe they are connected. And you notice here, Satan's throne is a targeted persecution of believers. And Antipas, this mysterious believer, is mentioned by name here. So there is this battle of the thrones. And remember, it is Pergamum where this Satan's throne is mentioned, where the governor resides, where Christians are being brought, where they would stand trial and then be executed. So we see this talk of thrones. Verse 3, we have a mockery of Christ, I believe. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Its mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, there is significant debate regarding this. I'm sure you're not surprised by this. If you see Revelation as primarily a future, describing what comes in the future, which I think is a legitimate interpretation of it, um, you're going to anticipate the beast or the Antichrist or something like that receiving some sort of mortal wound, whether it be an assassination attempt. Maybe the assassination attempt was successful. If you've read Left Behind series, remember them, um, Nikolai Carpathia is actually murdered. But he comes back to life a few days. Well, this is coming from this. He's the beast, so that is all future. But there is evidence, perhaps this describes Rome itself. And I go back and forth on some of this. I don't have all the answers. Some try to demonstrate that the wounded beast here is Nero or a later Caesar. Remember that Nero himself is assassinated. Actually, he commits suicide. Um, but, um, uh, and some saw that, that as a reference that you have the beast is mortally wounded. And what follows Nero is the year of three Caesars followed by a fourth Caesar who, who's able to, to, to sustain things. And so some see this, and it gets convoluted. How do you count it all? I, I, I get lost in it and, and whatnot. But I, but I do think it's clear there are references to Rome in Revelation. I, we may have already looked at this passage in Revelation 17. This calls for mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. We talked about her last week. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. Right, so on and so forth. There's debate about these kings. Are they various Caesars who have died and come and been replaced? But the reference to seven mountains, I think is clearly a reference to the seven hills of Rome. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Okay, now you could take it figuratively to apply to the future, but I think to the original readers, they would have seen that, the seven hills of the city of Rome. Well, 
regardless, right, of, of all of that, what matters is the mockery the dragon and the beast are making of the passion of Christ. This is a common theme throughout Revelation. Much as we believe in a holy trinity that we sing about, Father, Son, and Spirit, in Revelation you get an unholy trinity, dragon, beast, and false prophet. But regardless, we, we see here that the beast receives both praise and power as a political head. Now, the convergence of the state church is made evident in verse 4. They worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against him? So we see the corruption of the political system by the dragon to the point that the political system becomes the church. That's not language they would use. It's language we'd be familiar with. They worship the political system. Their security, their salvation, their hopes and dreams is tied to the empire. It's tied to the system, right? These are the bad guys in Star Wars, right? That's how it functions. Their, their entire being and identity is tied to this mergence of state and religion. And so it is no accident then that the Christians in Asia Minor are told they must worship Caesar, the living Caesar, like Augustus and others, in order to make a living, to provide for their family. Remember, we talked about the guilds or the unions. Unless you participated in the worship of Caesar and the uh, Greco-Roman gods, you would be kicked out of the unions. And if you're kicked out of the unions, you ain't got a job. Your, your livelihood depends on those unions. Now, you'll notice there, verse 5 to 10, just to sort of get through it, Quickly, the beast spends his time, 42 months. You can take that literal, three and a half years. You can take it figurative, do whatever you want. But he spends his time corrupting justice, blaspheming God, targeting the saints. Now, this does describe Rome to a T. But frankly, this describes every empire throughout history to a T. Right now, there is an abundance of beasts roaming this earth. Now, what I didn't say was, the Antichrist is here, everybody run, run. What I said is, the pattern is established in Revelation that has been consistent throughout human history. Beginning here, at least for the purpose of Revelation with Rome. Can we look at some points of general application here that I think will help us? And then we'll look at some specific points that will get me in trouble. The first is, Revelation offers, I believe, a thorough critique of Roman corruption in particular, but of empire in general. History has demonstrated that mankind always goes the way of Rome. Therefore, it is critical for Christians to be on guard against this way of thought and to stand against it. Notice what Rome corrupts in the book of Revelation. Three systems Rome corrupts. And we, we're just looking briefly at a lot of this. The first, Rome and empire corrupts the political system. Rome demonstrates the abuse of power, the corruption of justice, and the madness of mobs. More than that, Revelation is critical of Rome's rise to power to begin with, the little horn that rises, whatnot. After all, Rome came to power and secured that power through violence and through the military complex. Armed with incredible arming events technology, they conquered one nation after another. Their power comes by the shedding of blood, and they keep it by the shedding of blood. Can, can I prove that to you? There's a guy in the New Testament, you tell me if you've ever heard of him, who suffers under the mighty rule of Rome, and his name was Jesus. He falls under the Roman system. And what is the Roman system saying? We keep peace by the edge of a sword. You threaten peace 
we will kill you. So when Pilate hears he claims to be a king, what he hears, he's a threat to Rome itself. Rome has secured its borders, expanded its borders and influence, secured its economic might, and secured its peace that it bragged about through violence, oppression, and suppression. And we need not look farther than Jesus, but we could look farther than Jesus. What about the first martyrs of the Christian church? What about the Apostle Paul, according to tradition and others? They didn't die of natural causes. What about Antipas that we met in Pergamum? He didn't die of cancer in his old age. He died under Roman rule and a corruption of the political system. So not only does Rome in general and empire throughout history corrupts political system, there also is a corruption of the economic system. After all, think about it. You cannot separate politics from economics, right? I, we get this, right? You can't separate these two. Every time the president speaks or tweets, the stock market jumps up or down, right? You know, um, Democrats and Republicans, right? Every time they say something, every State of the Union address, every major address, and if he's in the Oval Office, the stock market's going to react, right? Good or bad. You cannot separate politics from economics. Now, in Revelation, economic exploitation is a major issue. Again, we talked about the guilds or the unions in Asia Minor, but, but look at uh, chapter 13, verse 16 to 18. The, speaking of the, the false prophet, the second piece, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is the 666 stuff, right? It's the end of chapter 13. It's right there in your Bibles. Notice here that if... If the first beast represents political corruption, the second beast, which is part of the system, represents the corruption of the economic system. So if you want to make a living in the system, you have to play the game. Doesn't this sound familiar with what we're going on today? Hey, bake the cake, you bigot. Doesn't this sound familiar? The corruption of an economic system for political purposes. And political corruption will lead to economic exploitation. The third thing that's corrupted in, in Revelation of, this, of, of the beast in Rome is the religious system. The second beast, the false prophet, represents the corruption, not just of the economic system, but the religious system. He draws the nations, as does the dragon, to worship the beasts. Thus, there is an emergence of three essential powers of every functioning society. The state, the church, and the economy. In Rome, these three were weaponized into an empire that victimized the weak, oppressed the outsider, and targeted Christians. But this is the way of empire. On the one hand, it is accurate to say that revelation is critical of empire because of, of Rome's targeted of Christians, right? You read this, you're like, well, the reason they're upset in revelation against Rome is because they're killing Christians. You'd say that's exactly right, but that's not the only reason why. Revelation offers a more robust criticism beyond the suffering of believers because he says to believers, hang in there. Some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to be dirt poor and, and, and starve, but endure because what awaits you is a kingdom that Rome will never take away. No one can ever take away. Yet while he's addressing the targeted persecution of the people of God, he's addressing these other issues, the corruption of a political system and economic exploitation and the religious uh, faith. It is ultimately a warning to believers throughout history that an empowered state is an enemy. 
The second thing, general application I want to make is, in case you missed the point, Revelation demonstrates that the problem with the world is not first and foremost politics or economics. It is spiritual. Maybe that's the one thing you're going to get from this because you're, you're probably tired and bored already, okay? Um, but at least get that. This is why the Old Testament is helpful to us. Revelation relies on it. When Israel had a war against the nations, it was not because of politics. It was because of spiritual warfare. Again, David slays Goliath. That is spiritual warfare. Okay? Um, so too Revelation shows that what is happening among the nations, what is happening in this world is not primarily politics. It is spiritual warfare. Think about it. If it were primarily politics that could solve all the problems, then replacing Caesar with another Caesar will fix it, right? Replacing Rome with the barbarians a few hundred years later should fix the problem. Replacing one elected official or one party in power with the other should fix the problem, right? Has any of this worked in your entire lifetime? No. No. And yet, what do we do every four years? We think, well, you know, it didn't work with this guy. Might as well give him a go. Oh, it didn't work with him. Maybe we should go back to that other party because it worked so well four years previously. No, <laughs> that was terrible. Let's go back to the old boyfriend, right? Isn't this what we do? We just trade back and forth with one bad idea for another, thinking, why hasn't salvation come down from above? Why are there still the same problems over and over again? Look, I've, I've made fun of this, and rightly so, but we say it every four years. This is the most important election of our lifetimes. Can I tell you what we're going to say in three years? This is the most important election of our life. In fact, I've already heard many of us say, I hope so-and-so runs. Because this is going to be the most important election of our lifetime. We're buying into this system, aren't we? If the solution is power, this problem would have been solved a long time ago. There has never been a shortage of power throughout human history. But the church should see that what is at stake is not our vote, but our prayers. Our prayers. It is not an accident that after an introductory letter to each of the seven churches suffering under an empire, we are given a behind-the-scenes look of heaven. Think about it. For seven churches, we get, I know your works and your suffering. I see your deeds, and, and things are really rough. But then we get, guys, look here. Pull back that curtain, and what do we see? The one who sits upon a throne. He's not pacing back and forth worried about what is going on. He sits upon the throne, the lion, the lamb, who takes the scroll. And as he breaks the seal, judgment comes down and God arrests from the nations. He arrests from empire. He arrests from such corruption for himself, his glory and his kingdom. And all the Christians around the world say, come Lord Jesus quickly, amen. Not because we want to elect the Nazarene, but because we want him to rule and reign over the earth. This is a spiritual problem, not a political problem. The problem is, is that when we refuse to read Revelation with this lens in place, we do so because we've bought into the notion the solution is political, historical, economical, religious. No, it is spiritual. What we need is the lamb to triumph over the beast. And that will not come from an election. It will only come by the gospel. Well, I'm going to look at some points of spiritual applications that will probably get me in trouble. 
The first great error, I believe, of the American church is the belief that salvation comes from man. The energy we spend every four years within the church, I think, demonstrates our failure to read Revelation as it is presented. Why do we consistently believe that a physical act, like an election, the passing of legislation, all of that, can win a spiritual warfare? Again, I've already said this, but the problems we have now will still be there in three years. And they're still going to be there in 100 years. Because they were here 100 years ago. There will still be poverty. There will still be exploitation and oppression and injustice. There will still be war and violence. There's still going to be all of that. Despite our votes, as well-informed as they might be, Despite all the memes we may share on Facebook, despite all the YouTube conspiracy videos we may watch, they're still going to be there. Because salvation doesn't come from legislation. Have you ever thought, every time we talk about reforming this country, you know what we're reforming? Something we had already reformed. How many times in my lifetime have we reformed education? Guess what we need to reform? Education. How many times in my lifetime have we reformed health care? Guess what we need to reform? Health care. How many times have we reformed infrastructure? Everything. We reform. And guess what we're going to do in the next election? Talk about reform. Salvation doesn't come from above. Your neighbor does not need a better tax policy. He or she doesn't need greater economic liberty or a wall on the border or the Equality Act. What your neighbor needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would do well if we prayed for our nation to repent more than fight for systemic reformation. Secondly, this is my last point. We'll go home. When Christians fall prey to empire thinking, we will make enemies of our friends. I think Christians in general, and I would say the Southern Baptist Convention in particular, because that's my tribe. Born, raised. What was it? I was born and bred Baptist, and I'll be something and dead Baptist. You all familiar with that phrase? Educate, reform me at the end of the service. Uh, oh, I, I was I was Baptist bred, and I'll be Baptist dead. Eh, maybe that's what it is, right? That'll be me. Well, unfortunately, I'm afraid of the last let's just say ten years, but a generic number on it. I'm afraid we've really bought into this empire way of thinking. I've said this in recent weeks: is that we no longer debate theological issues in our churches. You notice that? Talking in general, maybe East Frankfurt is the exception. I sure hope so. You remember when we used to debate? private prayer languages. You ever remember that? Don't you miss those days? What if someone says, hey, you know, I pray in tongues every once in a while. Man, we used to fight about that. That was fun. Remember good days. Those are good days. Remember when we fought over women in ministry? <laughs> well, I miss those days. Remember when we fought over the inerrancy of Scripture? Remember when we fought over the interpretation of Revelation? You remember whenever we fought over these things? I miss those days. Can I tell you why? We at least had our Bibles open. We left our newspapers at home. We left the YouTube closed on our phone. I miss those days. Today, what we want to debate is racism, immigration, sexual abuse, climate change, who you voted for, are you this, are you that? Think about it. If, if, if I were to suggest that race is a problem, even among Christians, does that make me a critical race theorist? But chances are there are plenty of people who will come in here. If I were to address the issue of race, they would say, that guy buys into critical race theory. 
Why? Because we assume not theology, but, but political ideology. And, and we're measuring the health of a church by its political ideology. If I were to say that sexual abuse has been and continues to be an unacceptably tolerated among our churches, including some of the Baptist churches, does that make me a liberal? If I were to suggest that we should love the illegal, pray for the uh, gender confused, and show mercy even to the wicked, does that make me a leftist? Or if I were to suggest that empire thinking is wrong, does that make me a, a part of the alt-right? What if we went back to the Bible? And here it is, right here in front of us. The beast rises out of the sea. The second beast rises out of the land. And they will corrupt everything in their power for the worship of the dragon. I miss the days when we fought over Bible translations and what constitutes a quorum. Because at least we were talking about Scripture. And those debates were silly and distracting. But at least we had our Bibles open. You know what we do now? We engage more in friendly fire than we do engage the enemy that is the dragon. The dragon whose desire is to consume the child born of the woman of chapter 12. The dragon that wants to destroy you. But it doesn't have to bother you too much because you're busy destroying other believers. That's empire thoughts. And that is what we see criticized in Revelation writing to oppressed victims of this system, saying, hang in there. Your hope doesn't lie in the beasts. It lies in the Lamb. For the day will come when the Lamb will mount a white horse, sword proceeding from its mouth, not to make war with military and and armament, but with the gospel, his very word. And the nations will crumble before him. And if the nations will crumble before the Lamb, why do we have a tendency to put all of our emotion and energy into those nations? For they will be thrown into the lake of fire with the dragon. But here is the Lamb who rules and reigns and will conquer. And by faith we are and we will conquer with him. So who cares what happens at the next governor's election. Because it won't change that reality. Let's pray.